And so during the season of Lent, we have been journeying together through a series called A Beautiful Life, The Fruits of the Spirit for a Worried World. Each week we've looked at a different fruit of the Holy Spirit and asked what are the characteristics of Jesus that God would want to form more fully inside each of us. And so far we've looked at the fruits of love, joy, and patience. And this week we are looking at goodness and kindness. Today I'll start by explaining what goodness and kindness mean according to God. And then we'll look at our Romans 12 passage to see goodness and kindness at work in that text and prayerfully in and through your life and mine today. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would come, that you would move in power amongst your people gathered. Lord, those few who are in this room and those who are tuning in from all around the city, from all across the country. Holy Spirit, would you bless your church, Lord, that we might be a blessing to the world. Our world needs to know the hope, the love, and the good news message of Jesus. So come, Holy Spirit, move in our midst to rekindle the life and hope of Christ in our hearts once again. Speak to us the words you know we need to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, goodness. My first year in seminary as a student was a bit of a struggle. I just graduated from college and moved away from North Carolina, leaving a community of great friends and everything that I'd known that had been familiar. I was plunged into a different social community of peers who were mostly older than me. Many had lives who were in flux at the moment, who had recently left one profession and who were exploring another. And as a result, many of my peers were perhaps wisely skeptical of super young kids like me who seemed to know very clearly what they wanted to do with their life. This created weird social moments where I'd meet someone new, I'd sit down with them and start talking about dreams I was passionate about that were on my heart, just to receive this look of kind of skeptical pity where people would ask me questions like, are you sure you want to be a pastor? How do you know? One night, I was just so frustrated with all of these experiences, I came home to my community house and started to vent to my roommate, KC. I told him, yes, not only do I know that God's called me to be a pastor, I want to be the best pastor ever. KC looked at me for a second, and then he said this, you know, William, I think you need to sacrifice this category of best, because God doesn't describe himself as best. God describes himself as good. My guess is that for most of us, the word good is like a totally meaningless word. Good tends to get associated with the standard and super boring way we greet each other in our culture. And you all know how this exchange goes. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good. Wow, great. So glad we talked. I mean, so much meaning was just exchanged there. And so unfortunately, good gets lumped in with that experience. It's associated with these meaningless interactions. So it's not surprising that most of us probably have no clue what to do with goodness when the scriptures use it to describe the character of God. In my conversation with KC, I saw good as being less than best. 
This idea gets ingrained in us, I think, through our elementary education system that teaches us that a C is average, a B is good, but an A is excellent. And for me to be a good pastor felt like settling, felt like being less than best. So what about God? If God is good, does that mean that God is less than best? That God was a few wrong answers short of an A? Casey knew what I didn't at that point. That God's goodness is not about a position in an American competition of merit. Goodness, according to God, is not about earning or skill or slickness. God's goodness is about the heart, the guts, the character. To call God good means that he has a virtuous and moral quality to his character and heart that is to be desired or approved of. And that inward virtue and quality radiates outward into how God acts both in his relationships and in the world. He has a benevolent intention towards all of creation and all of us, his human family. His good character moves him to leverage his strength to drive back the darkness that would overwhelm our world and our hearts without his good presence and action. One of the common obstacles to faith in God for a lot of thinking people is a philosophical roadblock known as the problem of evil. The problem of evil posits that if one, God is morally good, and two, God is all-powerful, then three, wouldn't a morally good and all-powerful being eliminate evil and suffering to the full extent of his ability to do so? Thus, four, since there is a lot of evil and suffering in the world, doesn't that mean that God must either not be all-powerful or fully good? Christians, atheists, believers, and non-believers of all stripes have been wrestling with this question for centuries, so I'm not going to be able to answer it any better than they have today. There are a lot of smart responses to it, but I don't believe that God has ever promised to give us an ironclad answer that will solve all of our mental gymnastics and wrestling about this. But intellectual honesty in our wrestling with the world means that we don't just have to reckon with the problem of evil— we also have to account for the problem of good. Everything in your life that is beautiful, everything that causes you to smile or laugh, everything pure and enjoyable, a sunset, good music, a lover, great friends, wonderful stories, the sound of rain, gosh, I love the sound of rain, happiness, all of it can only flow into your life because goodness is present in the world. And if goodness is present, it has to have a source that is willing that goodness to be there. A bridge will naturally decay if it's left by itself over time. So maintaining or building that bridge up won't happen automatically. It must be intentional. So it is with good and evil. All of us know that we don't have to work very hard to be good at sinning. Our cruelty, our disorders, and incredible abilities to make messes of things come naturally to us. Maybe not for you, but at least it does for me. But goodness? We have to work at that. Goodness requires intention.
I think most of us in first world America have been inoculated to the problem of good because we just think goodness is like the default setting of how the world is. We become used to a world where business principles just always work to keep growing our customer base or our bottom line. The stock market just keeps going up. And sure, bad and painful things happen, we can acknowledge that, but those things are always happening somewhere out there. Not to us. Not in our homes. Part of what has caused us so much panic around the coronavirus is that this pandemic doesn't leave us out just because we're wealthy and privileged and American. It's rocked our world and shattered our myth that good, ease, and tranquility are default settings for life on planet Earth. Which, by the way, is something that most other people in most other times throughout history have clearly known was not the case. 17th century British writer Thomas Hobbes described the natural state of humanity as, quote, a war of every man against every man, in which life is experienced as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Woof. In those words, Hobbes describes the true default setting of our world. Scripture agrees that that stark depiction of life is exactly what the world would be like and feel like all the time. Except for the crucial and decisive fact that a good God loves our world. That he loves us. And he insists on being present in our midst, holding our house of cards lives together, fighting against the darkness that would otherwise overwhelm us. Goodness, anywhere you experience it, either small or great, is not an accident. It is a mark of God's intentional presence. While God doesn't explain the problem of evil, the good news of the gospel is that God exposed himself to the nasty, brutish, and short, normal life of our world by becoming a person in Jesus. He stepped into the heart of our darkness, was tempted like us, suffered like us, and died. In Christ, God can say, me too, to every hurt we suffer. Whatever you are going through right now, whatever you feel emotionally, whatever you're thinking in your mind, whatever doomsday scenarios you are playing out, God understands. But God didn't just empathize in Christ. He conquered Rising from the dead three days after he was crucified and ascending into heaven as a victorious king who has promised to come back one day and finish the good and universal renovations he started. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust 100% that goodness will have the final word. And that even though evil and disease and death are still having a field day with our world and our hearts right now, their days are numbered. Because the God who right now is holding back the full force of the darkness will one day finally destroy it. All of it. And it is that sort of heart-deep, morally desirable, and approved character that motivates intentional darkness-fighting and benevolent presence in the world that God wants to form in us too as he grows the fruit of the spirit of goodness in our hearts. So that's goodness. 
What about kindness? One of my best friends in college once shared a story about the co-leader of his small group. He said that this co-leader, she walked into group one day with this sort of radiantly joyful smile on her face. And when, she, when he asked her, hey, you know, what, what are you, what's making you so happy? She said, well, today I went for a walk in the woods and I saw this leaf blowing in the wind. And you know what? God turned that leaf over for me. He did it just so I could see it. It's tempting for me in my cold-hearted cynicism to hear that story and think, yeah, right. It was just a wind and a leaf. That's what leaves do in the wind. It was totally random. But at the same time, I'm struck by this girl's capacity to experience the effusive, generous, and specific love of God for her. It's such a small experience. What that girl felt when she saw the leaf turned over is what it feels like to experience kindness. Like goodness, I'm not sure that most Americans know what to do with kindness. If goodness is overused and vague, I don't think I barely ever hear anyone describe other people as kind. I think our default is to assume that kindness is sort of like niceness. And let's face it, no one wants to be described as nice. If someone says you're nice, it means on the one hand that they're giving you credit for at least not murdering them on sight. But on the other hand, that you made such little impression on them that they can't remember you for anything other than your lack of outward meanness. But kindness is more than niceness. Kindness has an astonishing and effusive quality to it. Kindness goes out of its way to be joyfully generous, friendly, and considerate. When someone shows you kindness, you feel taken aback, both by the fact that you're receiving a wonderful gift beyond what you could ask for or even what you needed, while at the same time knowing that you did nothing to deserve this. But kindness is not just human altruism at its best and most personal. Kindness is actually who God is is. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Titus 3, 4 through 7, where he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us rightly through Jesus Christ so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, in Christ, God didn't just stop by the side of the road when your car broke down and you had a flat tire. He didn't just wait with you while you called AAA to make sure that you got the broken stuff fixed. No, in Christ, God got down on all fours, pulled out the lug nuts, changed the tire, and then drove us back to his awesome house in the countryside and hosted you for a week so that you could experience the vacation that you missed out on because of your wreck. God treated you like family and even adopted you, giving you access to all of the riches that by right should have only been his and never yours. In Christ, Jesus forgives our sins, yes. He repairs our wounds and heals our diseases, yes. But he goes far beyond that. He names us sons and daughters, 
adopts us into his family, provides for us every step of the journey from justification through sanctification and on into eternal life. And all the while, he promises to fill us with power through his Holy Spirit so that we can go out into the world and be like him to show his same generous, effusive, and neighborly kindness to others as well. That is what God wants to form in us as he cultivates and grows the fruit of the spirit of kindness in our hearts. As I spent time with our passage from Romans this week, I started to see Paul's words as a sort of guide for how to be a good neighbor during the time of the pandemic. Paul gives a lot of instructions in these verses, but standing behind all of these instructions is an encouragement to let God form more and more in each of us the fruits of the spirit of goodness and kindness. Verse 9 reminds us again that goodness must be intentional. We can't just drift through life and expect to come out godly. We have to hate evil and flee from it, and at the same time seek out good and cling to it. And we need the encouragement and the discernment that comes from prayer and from being in community with other believers to even know what good and evil are in the first place. Verse 10 reminds us that Christ-shaped and loving devotion for others involves placing their interests ahead of our own. That's why we're social distancing right now in the church as followers of Jesus. Not because we are scared of death for ourselves, but because we want to preserve the lives of others who may be more vulnerable than us. In times of crisis, the human family needs the power of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit to practice this sort of other-oriented devotion. There is a meme you may have seen this week with a healthcare worker encouraging us to stay home so that they can stay at work. The message is if we social distance and flatten the curve, even when it's uncomfortable and feels sacrificial for us, it will keep them from getting overwhelmed and allow them to truly care for the sick. So that together, as we lay down our self-interest for Christ's sake, we will save lives. Verse 13 encourages our generosity to share with those who have needs and to practice hospitality. And just this week, one of you provided a laptop to a woman in our congregation who had no ability to access a computer at home. We've set up portals on the main page of our website where you can sign up to offer care to others and to meet needs or to ask for help if you have a practical need of your own. We set this up so that we can help identify all of the resources in our congregation so that we can connect those resources to meet all of the needs both of our people and in the community around us. Verse 15 encourages us to rejoice with the glad and to mourn with the sorrowful. And we can only do this to the extent that we know what is going on in each other's lives. I can't celebrate with you if I don't know that you're celebrating. I can't mourn with you if I don't know that you're grieving. Especially in these days, we need to communicate with each other and press into our togetherness in the body of Christ using the tools that we have. 
If you are in a mission community, I want to encourage you to keep meeting together, even if those meetings are digital. Use the Zoom tools that Reverend Kristen has gotten for us. When you get a call each week from someone on our staff, genuinely let us know how you're doing, how we can pray for you, and if you have any needs. Comment your prayers and interact with one another on this feed during this service today. Reach out to one another. This is truly a time when the body of Christ can shine. And as verses 17 through 21 remind us, we shine by being a peculiar people in the world. A people who, because of the goodness and loving kindness God has shown us, know that we don't need to get even with others who have hurt us. If we feel like other people haven't reached out enough to us, that doesn't need to keep us from reaching out to them. If we feel like we haven't been given as much generosity as we would have wanted, that doesn't need to stop us from being generous to others. We can show goodness and kindness to others without needing to receive it from them first. Because we know we've already received immeasurable goodness and kindness from God on the cross of Jesus. And as we remember Christ's over-the-top love for us, it frees us to show over-the-top love to others regardless of what we get in return. Our world needs the kindness and goodness of Jesus right now. He is the only true and never-ending source of these things. Let us meditate on him. Invite him to anchor our hearts and our minds in the joy of the salvation that he's given to us so that we'll always have something real in our hands that we can give away to others. It's tempting to read all of these verses and get overwhelmed by the list of instructions. But these verses are not preaching workspace righteousness or meaningless religion. <clears throat> these verses show the fruit of a spiritually charged and changed heart. Verses 11 through 12 give the key to this spiritual charging and changing. They read, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. How on earth do we do that? Paul answers by pressing into verse 12. By being joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. There is going to come a day when this virus is going to end. And when we'll be free to hug and party again. And I can't wait for that day. And if we remember what that will be like right now, if we remind ourselves that that day is coming, it can fuel our endurance to keep going through the present hardships of lockdown life. And the beautiful reality is that that picture in a small way is true of the great spiritual story of our whole world. In Christ, there will come a day when Jesus will come back and he will end all disease, all death, and all violence. And on that day, the whole human family in Christ will gather together around a banquet table and share an epic feast. Let me tell you, there will be no social distancing between us and Jesus on that day. However far God feels from you right now, you'll be seated with him face to face, together, rejoicing, feeling 
the accomplishment of Christ's fully finished work. So Mission Cincinnati, remember that hope because it's truly yours in Christ. Let your contemplation of that hope fuel your patience in the midst of this time of affliction. And as you wait, be faithful to pray, to pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done, for disease and death to be eradicated, for goodness and kindness to be shown to the world, for the needy to be provided for, the lonely encouraged, and the church united, even when scattered. Amen.